Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Rachel Edelman, and I am your host for today. I'd like to welcome two guests to the New Books Network, Roberta Rosenberg and Rachel Rubenstein, co-editors of the book Teaching Jewish American Literature, published just this year in 2020 by Modern Language Association of America. Roberta Rosenberg is Professor Emerita at Christopher Newport University, and Rachel Rubenstein taught at Hampshire College and serves as Vice President of Academic and Student Affairs at Holyoke Community College. Welcome, Roberta and Rachel. So glad to have you here on the New Books Network. I'm looking forward to diving into our discussion, but before we do, can you each tell me a little bit more about yourself? Rachel, why don't you start? Um, thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, so, Thank you for having us. Um, uh, I, um, as you said, I taught at Hampshire College for many years. I was a faculty member there, and in the last several years, I was the dean. Um, of academic support and advising, and that then led me to my current position where I'm serving as the Vice President of Academic and Student Affairs at um, Holyoke Community College in nearby Holyoke, Massachusetts. Um, and meanwhile, I have continued to research and write and think about um, Jewish American literature, um, mostly in the context of racial formation in the United States and um, more recently, really thinking about hemispheric understandings of Americanness and thinking about Canada and Latin America and the Caribbean as, as additional sites of, um, of uh, Jewishness and racial formation. So that's what led me to Roberta, and that's what led me to this project. Fabulous. So I'm sure we're going to hear more about that hemispheric approach to Jewish literature in America or in the Americas. Um, so I want to hear more about that. Um, Roberta, tell me a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I, I am, uh, you know, I am a Merida from Christopher Newport University. And right now I'm teaching at the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement in Boston. And I've been teaching in fact, I just taught a class in Jewish humor, uh, which is a subject that I write about. I write about Jewish humor in literature and film and television. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested in that. But I actually got to that um, in a very circuitous route uh, because for most of my career, um, I was teaching for 33 years. Um, I actually worked in multiculturalism and women's studies did a, a good deal of work in uh, Native American literature and only came back in maybe the past 10 years to Jewish studies. So I sort of returned home after um, a, a fairly long time. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating roots and, and, and trajectories and bringing things back. Um, beautiful. So, um, Thanks about that. Uh, tell me what motivated you to bring together these essays in one volume. Give me some context and background for this wonderful, diverse collection of essays. Well, I, I had just um, actually finished a book for MLA, uh, and I, I, it, it went very well. It was on service learning, and so I was working with the um, the editor at the Modern Language Association. And he said to me, well, if you had anything else you wanted to do, um, and there was, because when I returned to Jewish studies, you know, in Jewish American literature, I could see that there was so much good literature, um, 
but not necessarily a lot of experience in the academy teaching it. And that seemed really important. And then I read an essay written by two, two professors who will remain nameless about um, teaching Jewish American literature at a major university. And they said, well, they didn't really have any background in doing it. And when they wanted to understand something about Judaism, they just asked the people in the class. And I was trying to imagine doing that myself, you know, like saying, well, who knows about African-American culture or who knows about early America? Tell us something. And so the more I, I did research, the more I thought um, this was a book that really needed to be done. And I, I spoke to a number of prominent people in the field and they led me to Rachel. So um, that was, and we have just a wonderful uh, partnership in, in working on this book. Okay. Uh, Rachel, do you want to add anything to that? Sure. Well, I just want to say what a privilege it's been working with Roberta. It's one of those amazing um, sort of um, happenstances where this amazing project falls into your lap and someone comes to you and says, I really want to do this project and I want to work with you. Um, and we were introduced through a mutual colleague friend, um, Ben Schreier, who is the editor of Studies in American Jewish Literature. Um, and so he was the, the Shadchan um, for this match. <laughs> and I would and I would just say, you know, teaching at Hampshire, Hampshire's, um, you know, a very teaching focused, small liberal arts uh, college. And I was hired um, to teach Jewish American literature. And so, um, you know, for years I had been really thinking about, first of all, how to attract students to those kinds of courses and then how to teach those courses in a way that felt really relevant um, to students' lives and experiences and um, in their, you know, and, and, and their um, uh, sort of courses of inquiry and the questions that they were asking about their place in the world. And so, you know, I always found myself really attracted to the pedagogy sessions at the Association for Jewish Studies, or, and I had taken part in a pedagogy roundtable for Milos um, about teaching Jewish American literature. So these were questions that I was really engaged with for a long time. And, um, and as someone who you know, I, I love the MLA uh, teaching volumes, and, um, and every time I, as a beginning teacher, when I was teaching a new text, um, this was a resource that I turned to frequently uh, for things like, you know, teaching Uncle Tom's Cabin or, you know, some wonderful MLA volumes about teaching both texts and bodies of literature. Mm -hmm. So when Roberta said, you know, there's this need, there's no volume that really addresses this, you know, she's absolutely right. And, you know, there's um, amazing scholarship happening in Jewish American literary studies that is interdisciplinary and comparative and sophisticated and multilingual and how to translate that into the classroom. Um, I think, you know, it's just a, it, it was an incredibly engaging project and, um, and people, um, there are teachers and scholars doing amazing things out there and we all want to know, you know, about what, um, what our cohort is doing. So this was a really great opportunity. Yeah, and, and just um, um, one more thing to add, which is when MLA gets interested in something, it really does change the field. So before uh, people were, this was a long time ago, talking about women's studies, when MLA became interested in it and did sessions in it, it really changed the nature of the way people looked at things. And MLA had two books on the Holocaust, which is something we can talk more about later, but that was it. And uh, it just seemed that there was this need. Fabulous, okay. Um, so maybe you can tell me a little bit about the parameters of the canon of Jewish American literature, how you define those parameters um, and how this book would intersect with the canon as you see it, uh, of uh, Jewish American literature, um, and perhaps refer to what the major works are um, and uh, you know, titles, authors, um, and perhaps things that have been overlooked that you would like to insert into that canon. 
that's a big question, but um, yeah. So maybe just what's the canon? How does it need to be expanded? And how do these essays intersect with the canon? What is start start off, Rachel? <laughs> Yes, I, so, you know, canon making is something obviously that preoccupied us as we were, um, as we were putting this volume together. And I think, you know, many of us in the field had a similar experience when we first discovered Jewish American literature, and that is that we came to it through perhaps a number of gateway texts that were really enrapturing and uh, captivating texts like, um, for me, it was, you know, Henry Roth's Call It Sleep and Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus um, and um, Abe Kahan's um, The Rise of David Levinsky, um, Mary Anton's The Promised Land. Those are the early texts that I was introduced to in graduate school. I did not study this as an undergraduate, but in graduate school, I was introduced to these wonderful novels um, and then, of course, that opened up a whole kind of area of study that is even richer and more diverse than that. Um, and I think a lot of us had similar experiences. Those of us who were lucky enough to study Jewish American literature in graduate school probably were introduced through, you know, these kinds of key texts. And then if we were lucky enough to study with a Yiddishist, as I was, um, introduced to the Yiddish literature of America. But I think the concept of a canon of Jewish American literature is such a recent idea um, and particularly unsettled and dynamic. So if you look at the earliest collections of Jewish American literature in the, you know, late 19th century, there are texts in there that, you know, hardly anybody reads or teaches now, you know, so, um, so I think, you know, this concept of canon making is particularly unsettled as it is in American literature. So when we think about it, you know, in the mid 19th century, Longfellow was the most read American poet. And, you know, now how many, how many of our students are reading Longfellow in class? Um, so I, so you know, the canon is something that is ever-changing. And, um, and so that is, uh, you know, what we wanted to take on in this volume is to acknowledge the key texts. And we have um, a whole section um, devoted to key texts and to really thinking about new ways to read those key texts. Um, and then, you know, our, um, a lot of our focus was on really um, discovering, illuminating, um, discussing, um, under-discussed texts, you know, undiscovered texts, texts that are newly accessible um, uh, to, to American students in the classroom. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think both we want to be able to illuminate the fact that canons are always dynamic and always changing and are responding to needs in the present and are more about the present than the past, um, to acknowledge what that canon has been, but also to expand it. Can you give me an example of the ways that you're stretching the canon and why? Like, why have certain things been overlooked and um, what ideal, uh, ideological issues um, prompt you to expand those boundaries? Well, some of it would probably, uh, you know, some of the, the female texts. I mean, mm -hmm. I think there was a time when uh, when you thought about the canon and it was Roth and Malamud and Bellows, I mean it was it was a, a group of of male writers weighing in on the male experience in America, and and certainly that that's one reason that we have a chapter that is that deals with gender, um, and it it deals with with gen you know uh, for instance uh, Yazerska is a uh, is a really interesting writer from a, uh, a female point of view, but also it gets us into issues of class um, as well as gender um, and ethnicity. So there are those kinds of, of conversations and also uh, looking at text in comparison uh, with each other. So for instance, which is a, an interesting thing to do, rather than creating an all-Jewish canon where people speak only to each other um, down some kind of line. Um, Judith Fagan's got an essay in which she's looking at uh, Yazerska and uh, Elena Viramonte's Under the Feet uh, of Jesus and looking at um, comparisons and issues of borderland 
identities. So, you know, when you're looking at, at some of the texts that we see, you, you know, there are some real differences as the, as the people are on the borders between cultures, as opposed to, you know, Philip Roth or Bellows being clearly within uh, the culture. Yeah, I would add, you know, what's interesting is that when we put out the call, Yuzhirska is such an interesting example. So when we put out the call for um, contributions. Can you, oh. can, you t can you tell me, the uninitiated, can you tell me a little bit more about Yuzhirska? Sure. So Anja Yuzhirska was a writer who was very, very active in the 1920s um, and was very popular in the 1920s. Um, her, um, her sort of novel memoir was adapted for Hollywood. Um, so she enjoyed a kind of um, uh, sort of popularity in the 1920s, but she was also as many more, you know, in the 1920s, her, her sort of persona was that she was a child of the ghetto and the child of immigrants and learned English and kind of wrote in this very kind of overwrought emotional um, style. And so she was sort of like thought of as kind of this diamond in the rough, self-made, you know, that kind of thing. And she also, um, uh, and she writes about um, in, inter, what in the 1920s would have been interracial romance, but it's, it's actually interreligious romance. So many of her Jewish heroines fall in love with non-Jewish, um, you know, um, male protagonists. Um, but more recent scholarship, I think, really looks at that persona as something that she crafted very, very self-consciously and cultivated. Um, but in any case, she is, she's very teachable in the classroom because she's feminist and she represents a certain kind of immigrant experience, Lower East Side, rebellious daughter, rebels against her patriarchal religious father. That's kind of like a, um, a kind of a narrative that happens over and over again in her work, um, you know, sort of like rejects the, Jew, the narrow parochial Jewish culture of her parents for the kind of the big secular um, world. Um, and, uh, and that is a narrative that in the 1920s was very captivating. Um, you know, sort of Jewish immigrant rejects Judaism for the big American world. Um, and I think, you know, started to kind of represent a kind of a Jewish experience. So when we put out the call for contributions, um, Andrzej Zerska was the number one writer that we received um, essays, proposals about. So we had more proposals about Anja Yuzerska than I think any other writer, right, Roberta? Yeah. <laughs> so what's interesting about that, first of all, um, yes, it's an opportunity to think about feminism and a female voice, but at the same time, I think it, it, um, it sort of um, res responds to a kind of narrative about Jewish experience that we still subscribe to. That is to say that Amer the American Jewish experience is about Eastern European Yiddish-speaking immigrants who come through Ellis Island to the Lower East Side in the late 19th century, um, leave religion behind, become secular, and kind of join greater, more liberating American society. And I think that is the narrative that I think there's a truth, some truth to that narrative for some American Jews, but I think there's a lot of Jewish experiences in the Americas that, are, that, America, that, that, that narrative doesn't touch. And that's what we wanted to illuminate in our volume. So, for instance, you know, Jews that were not from Eastern Europe, who did not speak Yiddish, who did not come to New York, who did not secularize, right? Like who stayed religious. Um, and so those are the kinds of narratives that I think there's literature. There is there are literary texts that reflect many, many different kinds of experiences. And I think the the major challenge in the classroom um, is to get students sometimes Jewish students, sometimes non-Jewish students, to kind of get past some of their assumptions and stereotypes about Jewish experience and American Jewish experience and really kind of open up to different kinds of Jewish experiences. So, um, so that's an example of, um, uh, those are some examples of, of uh, I guess, different kinds of uh, experiences that we were trying to represent in the literature. And, and we also wanted to move it away from the Holocaust literature Absolutely. exclusively, which um, I, I taught, you know, for many years in Virginia. And the, the main way that students knew about Jews was because everyone read the diary of Anne Frank or maybe Elie Wiesel's Night. Um, and that was it. 
Um, they had no experiences with Jews. And it seemed very important to open up the conversation in this book to teachers who maybe went to a seminar, and that's what it probably would have been, a seminar in Holocaust literature. And that was the their sum total. And while Rachel and I both think that it's extremely important to teach Holocaust literature, um, we knew that uh, it need that Jewish American literature needed to be more than that for a, a goodly number of students for whom that that is it. So you also. You also wrote about the Ashkenazi bias, the English bias in the American Jewish literature canon. Um, so can you mention the ways in which you redress, maybe mention, you said that that's what you tried to do in this volume. You tried to redress that, that bias. Maybe tell me some of the scholars that are engaged in the Ladino project or that, you know, because I think the first settlers in America were Sephardi, right? Isn't that right? Um, so maybe tell me a little bit more about who those authors are, who are the scholars that are engaging with those authors. Um, I'd love to hear about that. Sure. Well, I'll just give you some examples of some wonderful essays. So for instance, Laura Liebman, um, who's an early Americanist, looks at um, actually um, Dutch speaking um, uh, Jews in the Caribbean and some of the kind of material culture that they left behind and what that said um, about the way in which they saw themselves in the world and um, and how to use those literary artifact artifacts which they are literary artifacts you know gravestones for instance are literary artifacts she reads them as such um, and what that says about Jewish identity in the early Americas um, and I would say also in terms of language the earliest settlers in America were Sephardim but they didn't necessarily speak Ladino, it kind of depended on where they were coming from and through and where they settled. And so, you know, the languages of the Jews in the Americas are Dutch, Spanish, French, Ladino, you know, maybe Arabic, maybe Turkish, um, you know, not just Yiddish or Hebrew. So uh, German, Russian. So, you know, this is a very multilingual tradition. Um, so, so Laura Liebman looks at Dutch speaking um, Caribbean Jews in the very, very early um, in the 18th century. We have a wonderful essay by Daya Candioti, who, um, who discusses, among many other texts, Victor Pereira's, he's a Guatemalan Jewish um, immigrant, his uh, memoir in Spanish, um, and uh, The Cross and the Pear Tree, I think it's called. Um, we have a contribution by Justin Cami, who talks about a French uh, Jewish Quebecois writer, Régine Robin, um, who wrote um, a novel called The, the Quebecois, um, which has a lot of, uh, which is very multilingual in the sense that it's in French, but there's a lot of Yiddish in it, um, Yiddish intertext. Um, so really thinking about Canada, um, as Roberta said, the borderland between Mexico and the U.S. is another kind of site um, of literary expression and, and identity formation, the Caribbean. Um, those, are all, those are all subjects that our, that our writers take on. Um, we have a wonderful contribution by Sarah Castile, who talks about um, uh, Caribbean writers who write about both Jewishness and blackness. To, and, and the idea of identity, are you black or are you Jewish in the Caribbean is actually complicated because so many, um, so many people in the Caribbean are Creole, right? Creolized, you know, they, they have hybrid identities and, and really, um, uh, identify very strongly with both black and Jewish heritage. So that's a really interesting conversation. So, you know, there are lots of wonderful examples of scholars who are taking on the question of language and identity and geography in complicated ways. Yeah, and I think also that, that this gets at, at the ways in which Jewish literature or Jewish American literature can really intersect with some of the multicultural theory that is is happening so you know for instance uh, paul gilroy has a book called the black atlantic you know where he defines what he calls the cultural and political system uh where there are encounters of ethnicity and race that create and define the nation and engender new identities 
And that was happening in uh, Jewish American culture. So that notion of, you know, Gilroy's notion of hybridity um, or what he calls creolization is, um, is an, a one that I think you can apply to Jews and that hasn't been applied to Jews as multicultural literature has very much stayed in African-American, Asian-American, Native American ways. Yeah. So it sounds like you're talking about Jewish literatures of the Americas. So can you tell me how that subtle shift, that S, adding the S to literatures and to uh, Americas, how's that that has shifted focus and I mean, you said something about um, multiculturalism and multiple linguistic uh, sources, um, but but yeah, tell me a little bit more about that uh, subtle difference shift. You, you want to take that? <laughs> sure. I mean, I think you know. Um, literatures to me highlights the multiplicity and diversity of Jewish experience. So multiple languages, multiple places of origin, multiple experiences. Um, and uh, America's also kind of highlights, you know, challenges, you know, what, um, you know, the sort of idea of kind of the U.S. hegemony or kind of domination of the term America and really questioning, um, you know, really highlighting this notion of networks across the Americas, various migrations across borders. I mean, you know, because we're not just thinking about the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries, we're reaching back much earlier than that. Even the notion of borders is not settled um, until much later. So that border between the Caribbean, the US, Canada, Mexico, that is an unsettled border, right? For a very, very long time. And so, um, and so we're sort of, we're highlighting um, the interconnectedness of all of these um, sites for Jews and Jews definitely had networks historically, mercantile networks, family networks across all of the Americas. And so we're really highlighting this idea of literary networks um, too and, and, um, and really, just, really just repeating over and over again in, in different keys this idea of, of the diversity of Jewish experience and the diversity of Jewish languages and the diversity of Jewish identities and histories, um, which feels important right now as we all, you know, uh, people tend to develop stereotypes, right, about different groups of people. And we just want to challenge, uh, challenge some of those narratives. And I think we want to also challenge the notion that there is some sort of homogenous, nationalistic or religious literature that is that is unbroken and that doesn't have borders and that doesn't change. Um, I think that uh, Helene Flansbaum, who's one of the editors of the Norton Anthology of Jewish American Literature, um, she talks about American Jews, she says, as one of the rare instances where, well, she's using a technical term, where deconstruction comes fairly close to describing what's happening in America. She says what happens in, in Jewish American literature is this questioning, redefining, challenging, a continual process of making and shattering meaning, which is what we often talk about when we talk about um, multicultural literature. And she, she even says, and, and it's, um, she says, actually, the Jewish experience in the Americas, she says, is, has been in continual flux between deconstruction and reconstruction for the last 340 years. So you, you have that, that notion, too. It, it's not a modern notion. It, it's something that if you reach back, you, you can see it happening. And it's worth looking at um, in Jewish the Jewish literature of the Americas as it would be in any literature of the Americas. Fabulous. So, so I, um, where do you see Jewish literature, Jewish American literature fitting in the academy? Do you see it as parallel to African American literature or other immigrant literature or part of the English department 
or Jewish studies. And insofar as where you place Jewish American literature, how do what kind of tensions arise within that placement? And well, I think that um, that Jewish American literature hasn't been thought of for a very long time as a multicultural literature. And I know Rachel can can speak about that too. It was initially. Initially, books like The Ethnic Woman um, did place Jewish American literature within the multicultural canon. Um, but then it, it fell out. Jews were considered white and that they were examples of white privilege. But I think what we need to do is we really need to go back and, and look at the way Jewish American literature is a, is a perfect example of that multicultural borderlands. You know, for instance, um, Annette Kolodny has a, an essay called Letting Go Our Grand Obsessions, Notes Towards New Literary History of the American Frontiers. And what she says in this, but she's applying it largely to um, America, early America, and then to multicultural literature. She says, when people encounter each other, they appropriate, they accommodate, <clears throat> and they domesticate through language, um, that their lives and cultures are changed through that kind of mediation. That there's no, that there's a, this myth of a pure culture, and that cultures are, are never pure, um, but they encounter each other on the borderlands. So thinking about Jewish American literature in that way clearly puts it in the multicultural canon. You can see that. Or for instance, um, Paula Moyer and Ramon uh, Saldivar talk about fictions of the trans-American imaginary or this transnational imaginary. And that is the notion of American literature as intercultural, transnational. Um, if you just think of Jewish literature as this coherent national literature that never changed, then it can't be part of that, of the multicultural canon. But it is. Um, and especially if you look at the early and, and you follow it. And just one more example, which I think is probably the best. Um, is Mary Louise Pratt has this notion of contact zones in her book, Imperial Eyes. And she, she sees contact zones in, in uh, cultural contact zones as an improvisational space of activity and transformation as each group improvises and changes when in contact with the other, right? That is, how are people constituted and reconstituted when they come into contact with each other. And um, now that term, contact zone, is usually thought of in, in Mary Louise Pratt's notion in terms of what she says is colonialism, slavery, and, and the aftermaths of those things. If you only think of it in those terms, then Jews are kind of locked out of it. But if I think of even a short story like Grace Paley's The Loudest Voice, which is about a young Jewish girl who has to play a part in a, a Christmas pageant, does it in a Yiddish voice, with Yiddish inflection, and, and changes it, then it fits into the contact zone. That is, she, she doesn't become Christian, and the Christians don't become Jewish, but by being in contact with each other, they are both changed. Mm. And so if you think about Jewish American literature in those terms, which have really been uh, you know, used almost exclusively for a multicultural literature that does exclude Jewish American literature, I think it absolutely can be used and it enriches both American literature and Jewish American literature. Mm -hmm. Rachel, do you want to add to that? Yes. I mean, as Roberta is talking, I'm thinking a couple of things. One is that I'm thinking about, you know, you quoted Paul Gilroy before who talks about the Black Atlantic and there's um, 
there's a scholar, um, I believe it's Ella Shohat, who describes a Sephardi Moorish Atlantic. Um, that is to say that, you know, Jews from um, uh, the Iberian Peninsula, from North Africa, they also kind of created networks on both sides of the Atlantic and, you know, had a kind of a, um, the, a formation of a hybrid identity. And, and, um, and again, Daya Candiotti, one of our con contributors, she kind of highlights the ways in which um, these kinds of Jewish um, migrants or immigrants, Ladino or Arabic speaking, that they identified as much with Muslim or Latino, you know, immigrants um, as they did with sort of, you know, Jews from Eastern Europe. So, um, so that's just like an example of how these lines, you know, we create these kinds of categories of Jewish American, African American, you know, um, Latinx or, you know, as if that there are, as if there are clear divisions or boundaries between these categories and there really aren't, you know, they're, they're quite, um, they're quite complex. And, you know, I, I, just thinking about Jewish identity in America is the other thing I'm thinking about as Roberta speaking, you know, it depends on kind of how you count, but um, almost 20% of American Jews are Jews of color. And so to kind of create these boundaries between these different kind of, um, literatures, I think we have to be, we have to be willing to acknowledge some of the complexity um, of these labels um, or insufficiency of these labels. And finally, the other thing I'm thinking about is, you know, your kind of initial question of where does this fit into the academy? Like what department? Um, which, is a, which for me is a funny question because at Hampshire, we did not have traditional departments. And so I never actually had to think about departmental boundaries. We were, you know, we we're kind of organized into interdisciplinary schools. Nice. And so, you know, departments and the, the, I mean, I think of this as kind of the legacy of sort of the Christian European university, you know, in which the way, the way in which they structured knowledge was in this idea of departments. And I think um, maybe it's time to let go of some of those structures. Um, you know, an English department, a complete department, like what, what do these even mean at a certain point? And so I think that, um, you know, the, the way in which Jewish literature um, crosses all of these boundaries, I think also forces us to really question how we organize knowledge. Um, in the humanities, uh, which, you know, is ripe for reevaluation. Yeah. And I think the Modern Language Association un understands that too. I mean, our, our book has, we have comics, we have games, we, we have film, we have musical theater. Um, the idea that, no, we're just speaking about books or short stories or poems uh, is just, is not, not so. Um, I think those boundaries have, have fallen even in an august organization like the Modern Language Association. Wonderful. Um, so can you tell me something about how and why you chose to organize the collection of essays in this way? Um, yeah, and don't forget to mention the fan fantastic resources pages at the end of the book. Really fabulous. So tell me a little bit about the table of contact. Walk, walk us through your organizational principle for the book. Uh, well, I, I would say that the organization emerged out of the, um, contra the proposals that we received. And as we, you know, we had certain criteria when we were selecting um, the essays for the book and, you know, we've talked through them all, like essays that really kind of pushed against the boundaries of canons and of genre and of approaches. And then the organization um, kind of followed from what we had. It was really quite organic. And I think we were just trying to um, press against the question of literature, you know, so really expand the notion of what we consider literature we were really thinking about what are the innovative approaches that are ascendant in the humanities. So really thinking about, for instance, digital humanities or needing to spend some particular attention to gender and sexuality studies. You know, so these are kind of you know, approaches that are, um, have become really important um, in the humanities. It's um, not chronological. It's, no. all, it's more about the approaches you would take to teaching. Right. And literature. reframing. I mean, that's why reframing. the, first, the Fabulous. first part of it is reframe. In other words, how can you rethink it? How can you reframe it? Um, and then once you do that, 
and you don't have chronology mm. or geography, mm. then you're looking at things in a way, much more comparative way. Um, I also was, and yeah, we were, um, interested in having ha the ways in which uh, the Jewish American literature was taught by different people, different kinds of people in different contexts. So when I met Nadia Mohammed, who had actually taught Jewish American literature, in, who is a Muslim and had taught it in Iraq uh, before the, the, the fall, I thought I really wanted to see if she might do an essay. We have an essay on teaching Jewish American literature in Australia, in a Christian university where the, the uh, teacher is trying to help students reframe or rethink their, their Christian bias about the Bible and about religion. So in, in as many different contexts and with different kinds of teachers, uh, so, so as to destabilize and decenter uh, what you think of when you, when you think of uh, someone, someone teaching Jewish American literature. Yeah, really. I mean, one of the interesting sections is part four, gender and sexuality approaches. And you have this essay by Zohar Wyman Kelman on teaching Irene, Irena Klepfitch, is that how you pronounce her name? Klepfitch, who's a Yiddish poet? Yeah? Well, she writes in English, but with a lot of um, Yiddish. Yiddish yeah. Teaching this uh, American Jewish poet in Israel, Palestine, in Haifa. Uh, really interesting of how, how to engage her Palestinian uh, readers, um, her students in, 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 in this immigrant uh, experience. Really, really interesting. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, just very inter uh, interesting collection, interesting approaches to reading. The other thing I was really struck by is the, the essay, Four Approaches to Teaching Goodbye Columbus. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit, because I, I, I think almost everybody's read that novel. Can you say a little bit more about how that um, is paradigmatic of what this volume is trying to do? Well, I think so. So that, that particular example um, is, um, it, it's also an example of, uh, of, of how Roberta and I um, did a lot of recruiting for this volume. So, you know, when Roberta discusses, you know, finding or meeting Najah Muhammad and saying, oh my gosh, we need you to contribute to this volume. I think there was a lot of that happening because we, ha we were really making an effort to kind of craft, um, ex you know, expand these approaches. And, um, uh, and just as an example of another, of another essay that I, I particularly love, an example of a different kind of an institution is, um, the example of teaching Ladino literature in a Hispanic serving institution. Um, and I believe it's in, is it in Texas, Roberta? So the idea is that so many of the students mm -hmm. in, in that particular institution are heritage speakers of Spanish or speak all sorts of registers of, um, of unofficial or, or non-imperial Spanish. And so this idea of kind of teaching Ladino as an example of, um, of uh, a literature that's written in a language that is not 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 on the academic register, it kind of opens up something for the students, and um, they're encouraged to kind of create their own relationship with their own um, kind of unofficial family or home languages. So that's actually one of my favorite essays, also. Yeah, it, it, it actually has history. almost an activist notion. But yeah, I think love it. But the goodbye Columbus. Sorry, back to goodbye Columbus. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, yeah. What what we did with that is you know sort of a hundred ways of looking at a blackbird, exactly, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> is that uh, is that you know you can look at it from the understanding the nineteen fifties. You know, look at it that way, um, or or the post war identity. But then Bettina Hoffman is going to look at it in terms of teaching goodbye Columbus in Germany, mm -hmm. you know, so from a, a very different point of view or using film, you make, making it an interdisciplinary 
uh, way of looking at it. So what happens when, when a very traditional story that you know is translated into film? Um, how does it change? How does the audience change for it? So it, it was, and one of the things that we say in the book is we're not trying to say goodbye Columbus is the quintessential, you need to read it, um, a story, but rather you could take anything and start to parse it into all of these different ways. And so what we want to show you is probably something you're already familiar with and the ways that it can be parsed, which is why the, the resources part of the book, you know, you mentioned, I think that's a, a really important part of the book, both for people who are novices as well as people who have background. Um, I always kept in my mind those two professors who were going into uh, their classrooms and asking their students about Judaism to sort of gloss terms. I thought, that is not a good idea. We need to have resources for them. So they don't have to do that. And, uh, and so the resources are all, all kinds of things, including uh, conferences you can go to, online texts. What are some of the you know, the major primary books that you might want to look at with primary sources. Um, you know, the one thing that, that I've always felt this book, that any MLA book needs, is it needs to have an online uh, life. Um, and MLA hasn't done that yet. Uh, because no sooner will this book be published than someone will write something absolutely wonderful that's not in the book. So, uh, you know, it, it, if I had to do one more thing with this book, there would be some kind of online text so that the resources could be constantly updated. I, yeah, I, I, hope that, I hope that we can make that happen. You know, I, I think we imagined kind of to at least two different groups of people kind of coming to this volume with slightly different needs. And, you know, one group of people are perhaps, you know, Jewish studies or Judaism experts who are now going to teach a Jewish American literature course or teach some Jewish American literature in the context of a, of a, of a um, in the context of a course and who just don't know very much about um, the American context or, you know, um, the, the sort of cultural or historical or literary ways that they can look at these texts. And so that's one group of, at least one group of people we can imagine coming to this volume needing some, um, needing some guidance. And then, of course, the other group of people are Americanists um, who are looking for additional, um, uh, additional context, additional resources for learning about the, specifically the, the Jewish aspects of the literatures that they're teaching. And so those are at least kind of two, at least two groups that we can imagine coming to this volume with some different needs. And so the resources section is, you know, kind of um, has all of these potential different audiences in mind. Right. And, and also just multicult people in multiculturalism right. and multicultural literature. Um, so, you know, we would, we would like very much to join that, that group. And uh, we hope that people will see the resonances. They'll, they'll see where we, we and they are doing many of the same things, but in a different context. So we're bringing our conversation to a close. Um, so you, you said something about who is the conjectured reader of this collected collection of essays. I really appreciate that. And um, perhaps some of the sequels that you see. There's one question I did not write in my <laughs> questions that I sent you in advance. And that is I noticed that some of you deal with television. One of you, I think it's, Rachel, do you deal with television? I do. Um, yeah, Roberta, you deal yeah. with television right. series, and there's a lot on, you know, like from transparent to, uh, to where, where there, mm -hmm. there are Jewish contemporary heroines and heroes, um, if you want to call that, it might be anti-heroes. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering whether that would be another trajectory for a sequel to this volume, the way in which Jewish um, 
identity intersects with the um, TV or um, series world. Right. And I did um, recently, you know, past few years, did an essay for a show for on a ritual in Transparent. And I write about Curb Your Enthusiasm and Transparent and write about uh, uh, some of Englander's work and, uh, and Sholem Oslander. And, uh, you know, so it's, uh, I, it's, it's surprising to me that I write on television since I practically don't watch television. But, but I do watch both Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld and Transparent. So, um, and I have written on that. And I think probably we, you know, could look at this very much in terms of popular culture. We had, we really just had one essay um, that dealt with um, musical theater uh, and, and one on comedy, which is, which I didn't write. Um, we had someone else write it, but uh, we, ironically, I do write on television and we don't have an essay on television. <laughs> Another I know <laughs> there has to be another book because you know I I um I, I work a lot with Yiddish source materials and we totally could have much more on Yiddish and um and what's really exciting is just in the last couple of years there's been a um uh an uptick in the number of translations of Yiddish literature especially by women um in fact primarily by women and so there's this whole cohort of feminist translators and scholars who are you know, making this body of literature um, uh, more accessible to English readers. I mean, only a kind of a fraction of Yiddish literature has been translated and, um, and Yiddish women writers in particular have been a kind of um, under, under translated, underexplored um, cohort. So just in the last couple of years, there are new titles coming out that are in English, that are accessible, that are teachable. Um, so there's, there's, uh, there's always more to be done. Yeah. And, and there also is, I think, just, uh, and this is in the popular culture and then not and in regular literature, there is this fascination and sometimes repulsion at the same time with orthodox um, Judaism. That is that, that desire to know more. I mean, uh, TV programs and books like Unorthodox or Stiesel, um, it, it is very interesting to me that, uh, and, and this would be true even with transparency interest mm -hmm. in, in ritual, mm -hmm. it, there's a, a, a fascination, uh, about the Orthodox world on the part of people who might be extremely secular. Mm. Um, and it's, it's something that, that is part of my next project to write on, yeah. um, because I, I think it's. There, there, there's a, uh, a genre of American literature called the captivity narrative. And it goes back mm, to early America um, where you can, you can see uh, Puritan women who are uh, captured by natives and write about their experiences. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to think that there is within Jewish American literature um, a whole genre on the captivity narrative that I'd like to apply to Jewish literature as well as uh, television and film. So, but but it, they're captive by their own people and only released, freed into the secular world. So that's part of that stereotype that you're trying to undermine the stereotype of. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah and then there, but, but then there are people who wrote a little bit earlier that who predate unorthodox and Stiesel and some of these uh, people like Liz Harris, who was a New Yorker writer who spent a year with the Chabad, the Lubavitch community, and wrote a, a kind of a memoir, I'm not sure what to call it, called Holy Days, in which she says, I am not the sort of person who would ever be attracted to becoming Lubavitch. And yet she is attracted to it sees it, and she says, it's like looking at an antique version of myself. Hmm. I wouldn't become it, and yet there's something so positive about it. And that is that attraction repulsion that you can see 
among secular people mm. who say, oh, I just could never do that. They're, these people are captivated and yet they're attracted. Mm. Really um, interesting. Fascinating. Yes. Fascinating. Wow. Um, so, uh, Roberta, you just told me a little bit about what you're working on now, which is the television, the popular culture nexus um, between Jewish and American. Uh, Rachel, I want to invite you to tell me what you're working on now. Sure. I'm on the uh, other end of the spectrum where I am thinking about Christopher Columbus. So from contemporary oh. television <laughs> to... Um, to one of the, right, one of the sort of foundational narratives of, of conquest. Um, I am, I've been working on a piece for a long time, um, a Yiddish Mexican poet named Yankov Glantz or Jacobo Glantz, who wrote a Christopher Columbus epic in Yiddish um, and published it in the 30s, first published it in the 30s and then republished it, expanded in 1980. And it's a retelling of the Columbus epic from the point of view of the Jew on his ship. And also from the point of view of one of the, one of the indigenous um, caciques who, who is briefly mentioned by Columbus in his journals. And so it's a kind of a retelling of the Columbus story from the perspective of kind of silenced or marginal characters in the original journals. Um, uh, so it's in, in that way um, participates in a lot of the kind of uh, techniques of the neo-slave narrative or, um, you know, in the sense of kind of rewriting narratives of enslavement and conquest um, from a very kind of contemporary um, perspective and, and kind of with the intention of really shifting the historiography um, of those narratives. And so... Um, the Columbus epic was never translated into any other language. Sections were translated into Spanish. Um, and so I'm thinking about um, translating why. I am translating certain sections to be published in a volume of primary sources, um, and then also working on, a, on an, you know, an, an essay that, um, that provides some analysis and some kind of just attention to this, this really amazing epic that, um, that is not very accessible to most readers anymore. Interesting. So there were Jews in the halls of Columbus's ship. I mean, 1492, was that was the great, you know, yeah. the, so the there calamitous was year. Sure. So there was at least one, um, uh, one, named, Jew. one Jew named Luis de Torres. And the reason we know is because Columbus mentions him in his mm -hmm. journal as mm -hmm. someone who used to be a, a Hebrew um, and who speaks many languages. And so the idea was that um, what the, the thinking is that he was hired to be, because Columbus thought he was going to be getting to Asia, um, that this Luis de Torres, who could speak Arabic, and, you know, that he could serve as, a, as an interpreter. Um, and so he's very briefly mentioned. There are a couple of actual things that happened to him in Columbus's journals that are really interesting. And then there's, over the next centuries, a lot of filling in the gaps and a lot of imagining of what might have happened to Luis de Torres. And so Glantz is kind of participating in a whole kind of like Jewish imagining of Luis de Torres. Um, so, so there was at least one um, <laughs> on Columbus's ship. There might've been more, you know, we don't know. And isn't um, there, uh, Rachel, isn't there all this speculation about, be because it's the time of the expulsion of the Jews, right? It is exactly the same time. That, I mean, there are all these hypotheses about Columbus being Jewish or, you know, which I, sure. yeah, yeah. Yes. So Glantz doesn't seem to subscribe to that theory, but oh, that was, okay. yeah. that makes its first appearance. Well, there's a long history to the Columbus being Jewish theory, but there was a big, because the 1930s were um, uh, kind of one of the anniversaries of the landing. It was, you know, every, every decade or whatever, there's a, there's a kind of marking of the anniversary of the landing. And so in the 1930s, there were a number of articles about the, the um, Columbus's potentially Jewish origins, but a lot of historians were working on kind of new histories of Columbus in the 1930s, um, which Glantz was probably influenced by. But there's, there's some historians speculate that because, because Columbus was trying to um, fund his, uh, his journey or his, um, what do you call it? His, yes, his, his journey um, at the same time as the expulsion, 
that he, he actually couldn't find a lot of sailors because, you know, so many Jews were leaving and were being, you know, were, were um, uh, leaving. Um, so many Jews were leaving Spain that all of the boats were taken. So he was, uh. he was kind of desperate for, for staff for his ships. So um, that could be why he had um, maybe more Jews on his ship. <laughs> Some historians speculate that he was kind of stuck for good, for good staff. Uh-huh. Because they were all they were all being um, hired to take Jews out of Spain. Wow, fascinating, <laughs> fascinating, fascinating. So this also relates to that question of of the America's question and literatures. The the you know the the way that you complicate those two terms. Um, so I want to thank you so much for being part of the new book. Books Network, um, New Books and Jewish Studies. This has been a very enlightening conversation. And I hope people will go out and buy this book, Teaching Jewish American Literature, just produced by MLA 2020 um, in paperback. And hopefully they'll have some online presence as well. So you can access those amazing selection of resources. Thank you so much, Rachel and Roberta. And, thank uh, you. Thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with us. Yeah. Really yes, thank it. you. It's a yeah. great conversation. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you.